Welcome to Wilderness Podcast, a passion project about wilderness and wild places, with your host, Adam Bronstein. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Wilderness Podcast. In this episode, I have Michael Garrity, Executive Director with the Alliance for the Wild Rockies, back on the program. This is probably one of the most important and insightful interviews that I've had on this program, and it should be listened to by Americans all over the country who care about wildlands and wildlife on our public lands. In this episode, we discuss Mike's career evolution, how the Alliance for the Wild Rockies has been able to maintain its mission and integrity over the decades, the origins of the Northern Rockies Ecosystem Protection Act, why the Alliance sues the Forest Service more than any other environmental group in the country, Wild Montana, Greater Yellowstone Coalition, and the Wilderness Society's promotion of harmful logging projects, and the destruction of wilderness-quality lands as part of a culture and system of corruption, what greases the skids of conservation collaboratives, the public's overwhelming support for roadless lands in Montana, the ecological price of continuing motorized and mechanized recreation in roadless areas, the importance of quiet to native wildlife and the human animal, the who, what, and why of conservation collaboratives, the disastrous Blackfoot Clearwater Stewardship Act, the many threats from road building, the Lincoln Prosperity Proposal, the Gallatin Forest Partnership, what true protections should look like under 30 by 30, and how to start turning the tide for wildlands across the Northern Rockies. All right. Well, thanks again for listening. And now I bring you Michael Garrity. Mike, thanks for joining me on this Saturday. I appreciate your time on the weekend. You're welcome. My pleasure. So I had you on episode, I think it was 49, where we talked about the Northern Rockies Ecosystem Protection Act. So listeners can go back and and have a listen to that. But we'll talk about Naripa a little bit today. It would be impossible not to. So I don't think we talked about your career evolution last time. Like, how did you get into this work? I graduated from the University of Montana with a degree in economics and history. I went and became a bartender in Ireland for six months. And then when I came home, I had a girlfriend who hadn't graduated yet. And so I needed a job. I got a job at a savings and loan. And I worked there four years. And I thought I, every year I was becoming dumber than the year before. So... Montana was in a recession at the time. I had a sister who lived in Boston, and she encouraged me to move out there, and I did. And I became an accountant for a real estate development company. And I thought all I was doing was making uh, a millionaire richer. I don't think we had a lot of billionaires in the 80s. And so I ended up quitting that and decided to go back to the University of Montana because I wanted to be an environmentalist. So I, there was a, the head of the economics department there at the time was a man named Tom Power and he was an environmental economist. So I thought I needed some type of education to be able to get a job with an environmental group. And, um, I started volunteering for the Lions for the Wild Rockies because my dad pointed out Outside Magazine said they were the best small grassroots group in the country. And I had volunteered for other groups, but all they had me do was stuff envelopes asking people for money, whereas the Lions for the Wild Rockies put me to work. But it was after 
doing these jobs that I didn't think was fulfilling. I and living in places like Boston, I it, it made me value wild lands that Montana has. Um, I grew up as one of six children, and my parents took us backpacking a lot because it was cheap way to cheap entertainment or cheap vacations. So I grew up appreciating wildlands. And so I now wanted to protect them rather than just make some rich person richer. And so after I volunteered for the Lions, I kept doing it. I ended up going to grad, continuing my education at the University of Utah. Mike Bader eventually resigned from the Alliance for the Wild Rockies and they, I had gotten on the board then and we had a couple board directors that didn't work out, and so I, the board and I got the short straw, and, and I've now been uh, the executive director for the Lions for the past twenty something years. Wow, it's been twenty years. When did that outside article come out that you first read? Um, it was about nineteen ninety. Nineteen ninety. So. I still think you're the best group operating in the Northern Rockies. And how, like, how does the, how did you, how did you guys keep that going? Right? Like with, we're going to talk about some of the other groups in the area who have just gone downhill. Like how did you maintain your mission, your integrity and your focus throughout all these years? What's the secret? Well, I think it's just for me, it's just my history. I, I was making pretty good money in Boston and I just thought I was leading a empty, shallow life. I realized that money doesn't equate with happiness. So I, I wanted to do something important. I wanted to make a difference. And my father was a plaintiff's attorney. And he, for example, there was a lead smelter in East Helena, Montana. I grew up in Helena, Montana. And um, he sued for a rancher because uh, this lead smelter had put lead into his soil just from, you know, all the air pollution. And he filmed his cattle stumbling around and he ended up winning. And and I was really proud of my dad because he had made a difference (laughs) and I wanted to like make a difference and help make the world a better place. So I was attracted to the Lions because their focus wasn't raising money and it was protecting the habitat. The mission of the Lions for the Wild Rockies is to protect habitat for native species in the Northern Rockies. And it seemed to me from volunteering at a lot of different environmental groups that most environmental groups mission is to get bigger. And there's at the University of Utah, there was a professor who wrote a book called The Theory of Social Movements. And his theory was the bigger the social movement got, the less power it had. Social movements have the most power when they're very small. And he said that a nonprofit organization gets bigger and hires more employees. There's more and more pressure to raise money to pay for all these employees and then there's just a natural incentive that to get bigger because if a groups get bigger, then um, the head of that group can apply for an even bigger job, showing how he grew his organization. So, 
essence of the outside magazine is the Alliance was not like that. It, it was very critical of a lot of big environmental groups for spending all their time and energy raising money. And it said if you donate $25 to the Alliance, you can be assured that $25 will go to protect habitat. So that's what attracted me, and I've just been very firm on that since then. Because, I mean, that's what our mission is, and I want to be an honest person and tell people that if they donate to us, we will uh, focus on protecting habitat. And you're a one-person organization. Well, I'm not a one. I'm the only paid employee, but the Alliance was created to be an alliance of small grassroots groups and individuals where we could work. It wasn't ever designed as a hierarchical alliance. It was designed where if people agreed on something, they could work together. And if people don't agree, then they don't work together. So almost every one of our lawsuits that we file, we file with at least one other group, usually more. And the Northern Rockies Ecosystem Protection Act that came that was first introduced after the alliance was formed, right? Right. The alliance was formed in 1988. The Northern Rockies Ecosystem Protection Act was first introduced in 92 or 93. It was written by scientists like Dr. John Craighead. He was named by National Geographic as one of the top uh, 100 scientists of the 20th century for his his and his brother's Frank work on Yellowstone grizzlies and grizzly bears were listed as one population when they were uh, listed under the endangered species act, I believe in 1975. And so the whole goal to recover them was when they were listed, they had, they had shrunk down to isolated populations and, Yellowstone ecosystem, the Northern Continental Divide ecosystem, and the Cabinet Yak ecosystem, and then they and the Selkirk ecosystem in uh, Northern Idaho, and then they designated another ecosystem they thought was essentially essential for recovery called the Bitterroot ecosystem, which is the roadless areas in Central Idaho and Western Montana. And Craig had said, "Okay, well, to recover these, we need to." work toward having, once again, having one essential population, one essential connected population. To do that, we have to protect the corridors between the greater Yellowstone ecosystem, the Northern Continental Divide ecosystem, and the Bitterroot ecosystem, and corridor along Canadian border um, to connect the Cabinet Yak ecosystem and the Northern Continental Divide population and the Selkirk population. And there's, there's also the Cas- Northern Cascade population. The connect with them, it basically has to come down through Canada. But, yeah, it's pretty broken up over there in eastern Washington. Aren't, yeah, aren't, aren't well, many stepping stones over. Right. And so everything we focus on is based on this whole goal. And so if there's a bad logging project or mining project in one of these corridors, then we fight it. And unfortunately, really the only way to fight the federal government is to sue them. Uh, I've heard rumors, Mike, that your group sues more than any other environmental group in the country. Is that true? Uh, Yes. The um, GAO, 
which is you know an auditing of arm of Congress. They did a study of it at the request of a member of Congress and found out the Alliance for the Wild Rockies uh, sued more than any other group, sued the Forest Service more than any other group in the country, which I found amazing because <laughs> Alliance is a very small organization. As I said, I'm the only paid employee. But, you know, there's groups like the Sierra Club that has hundreds of millions of dollars and, I don't know, thousands of employees, the Wilderness Society, and we see more than they do. But the big reason is, back to what I said before, foundations don't necessarily like to fund lawsuits. <laughs> they Foundations are, you know, founded by rich people, and they often want nonprofits to help their political friends get elected or reelected. It's and, not like it's not like suing your neighbor for building a fence on your property though, right? Like why do people get so worked up over over fed, you know litigation and suing the federal government just to follow their own laws? Um I'm not really sure. In general, the public doesn't really like litigation until it affects them. And then they so like if they're harmed by a company or by their neighbor, you know, building a fence on their property or something, then they support litigation. But it is in part of the First Amendment. The First Amendment not only guarantees freedom of speech, but it also guarantees a, the right of citizens to challenge the federal government. And so it's, it's a constitutional right in the First Amendment. The um, politicians regularly criticize us for suing all the time, but and foundations. When I first, we don't really get much big foundation fund, funding anymore because we sue a lot more than we did before I became executive director. And one foundation who was giving the Alliance for the Wild Rockies money said they would no longer give us money because we weren't helping Democrats get elected. <laughs> and I said, well, that's against the law. That mm -hmm. was. It conversation but what they generally do is they like the montana wilderness association now known as wild montana they were pushing senator tester's proposal to open up uh, a million acres of roadless lands in the beaverhead deer lodge national forest and to logging and road building and then also mandate logging of 15,000 acres a year in the Beaverhead Deer Lodge National Forest and the Kootenai National Forest. And the Kootenai National Forest is where the cabinet yak grizzly bear ecosystem is. And there's they're down to 42 grizzly bears. The recovery goal is 100. And most grizzly bears are killed near roads, which are logging roads. So this would essentially have overrun our over ruled you know any court decisions and uh the montana wilderness association got a lot of money from the pew foundation to support tester's bill and essentially they got their members to write letters to the editor and columns that with the theme of thank you senator tester for you know your bill to destroy de facto wilderness areas and when i moved back to montana in 1990 the Montana Wilderness Association had one full-time employee and one part-time employee in a small rented office. So 
I went down there to volunteer and they had me stuffing envelopes while the two of them complained about the radical environmentalists in Missoula. So I thought, well, I'm not doing anything because if I wasn't there, they would have had to stuff the envelopes themselves. But now that they've really become a full-blown collaborative group supporting logging and they actually intervene on the Forest Service side on uh, some of our lawsuits and they're represented for free by a timber industry paid lawyer. They now have, I think, 29 employees and they own their own, they own a, their own office building, which is a multi-million dollar office building in downtown Helena. So it, financially it's worked out really well for them. Now, some groups also get paid by the federal government to be a part of these collaboratives. They do. The, it's not a whole heck of a lot of money, but it's still, you know, well, 10000 50000 I mean, it adds up. It does add up. The uh, Montana Wild, formerly known as Montana Wilderness Association, um, they get money from the Forest Service by convincing their members to volunteer to uh, maintain tra- hiking trails. Mm-hmm. And then the Forest Service pays Montana Wild for the volunteers' work. And that's up to like what thirty bucks an hour or something like that. It's like, I don't. It's yeah. They they're paying them as if they were full time employees. So I'm not sure what the hourly rate is, but they also pay them just directly. The Greater Yellowstone Coalition got seventeen thousand five hundred dollars to be the mediator for a collaborative group to design a logging and burning project in the Gravelly Mountain Range in Southwest Montana. Um, near the Continental Divide. It's an important uh, corridor for grizzly bears coming out of the Yellowstone ecosystem to try and reach either the Northern Continental Divide ecosystem or the Bitterroot ecosystem. Now, do you think anyone from these groups could actually tell you with a straight face that what they're doing is is really protecting these ecosystems? Well, when I talk, so after I left the University of Montana, as I said, I went to the University of Utah and I I taught, they, you know, as a graduate student, they paid me to teach. So I taught environmental economics. And every new term, a student would always, when I would explain what the Forest Service was doing, people would say, well, how can they do this? Why would anybody want to do it? And I said, well, wait till you graduate from college and you get a job and Maybe get married, and so you got to pay your mortgage, you got to pay your car payment, you got to save for your kid's college fund. So you don't want to get fired from your job, but you also want to—you don't want to think of yourself as a sellout. People have people are social creatures. Right? That's how we've evolved, and so people have this amazing ability to like talk themselves into what they're doing is right. And as far as the Montana Wild and other groups like the Greater Yellowstone Coalition, they don't they don't talk about wildlife anymore. If you they talk mostly about recreation, about how important it is to uh, destroy these roadless areas by putting, you know, opening up for the, the industrial recreation complex, but also for the timber industry and the cattle industry and the snowmobile industry, they, they want to promote commerce. They get paid to promote commerce. So they is, just, this, is this what the public wants, do you think? I mean, do they, 
maybe they they don't have the information they need to really oh, understand their impacts. But the only poll that was done in Montana about roadless land. Well, first of all, the vast majority of all Americans, when uh, Clinton designated the roadless rule, vast majority of all Americans and and even people in places like Montana supported protecting all roadless lands. So I think the public overwhelmingly supports that. Early 90s, uh, the Lee Newspaper Corporation owns most of the big newspapers in Montana. And they did a, they hired pollsters to do a poll form about how much of these roadless lands should be designated wilderness. So in Montana, there's about 6.4 million acres of roadless lands. And the most people said we should designate it all as wilderness. Now, with the roadless rule... Like the big compromise was that these places could be used for motorized recreation, right? Um, that is correct. Um, well, it could be, yeah. Well, it could be used for mechanical recreation, and then it was up to individual travel plans to decide if it should be motorized recreation as well. And there's stricter limits with the Wilderness Study Area Acts. Like- yeah, Wilderness Study Area. The law says the area has to be maintained in the same way it was when it was designated a wilderness study area. So to keep open the possibility that it could be eventually designated wilderness. So if there were no motorized trails in a wilderness study area, they couldn't build any. So what do you say to people who would oppose the Northern Rockies Ecosystem Protection Act because it's going to take away all of the the motorized recreation and all the fun they're having out there? Well, they already have access to all areas outside of roadless lands. So they're just saying they want it all. They want to be able to ride their ATV or snowmobile everywhere. And the price of doing that is scientists like John Craighead and um, conservation biologists like Dr. Bill Newmark at the University of Utah Museum of Natural History say species will go extinct. We're in the middle of the world's sixth grade extinction period. And only way to save it is to protect ecosystems. They figured out that places like Yellowstone Park aren't big enough for species to survive in the long run because the they end up getting inbred. So that you have to like grizzly bears, for example, have to have one connected population of at least 2,000 grizzly bears. And so they're saying, well, I want to ride my motorized vehicle everywhere or even, you know, my mountain bike everywhere. And I don't care about wildlife. So, and they're straight up about that. And, and uh, I just say, well, most Americans disagree with you. They want species to <laughs> not go extinct. And the the impacts on the human animal too, right? Like when we go into wildlands, there's something transformative about finding quiet and leaving civilization behind. Right. And that's what I grew up on when my parents took us backpacking all the time. But there are studies now that show that native forests, you know, untrammeled by humans are really important for people's health. That if you spend time in a forest, Apparently, your blood pressure goes down and your stress is relieved. It's 
it's a very calming, healthy place for humans to be. During the pandemic, when it first started, remember when all the flights got canceled? Yes. Um, do, do you remember, did you look up at the sky at all and, and just notice how clear it was and quiet? I, did. I also noticed um, the lack of traffic. You know, I mean, at one point, oil on the commodities market was felt the price of it fell below zero. They had to pay people to take oil yeah. because people weren't driving. So, yeah, it was a much quieter place. I also remember that for the three days after 9-11 when, you know, just planes weren't allowed to fly, how quiet it was. I was living in Portland at the time. I was shocked how quiet it was because planes weren't flying overhead. I made a short video in the Mount Jefferson wilderness during the pandemic when it was so quiet and I was out there just like, I mean, I could hear everything, like every little detail. It was incredible. Like the birds were so vibrant and it's part of a major flight path, you know, going over to to Portland um, over the Cascades. But my gosh, the quiet during that time, I just, I still relish in it. Um, Just unbelievable. I noticed that um, when I lived in Utah, I'd go to Southern Utah a lot and go out, you know, to roadless areas that are pretty big there. The Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument is a good example. Apparently, if you want to get the farthest away in the lower 48 from any road, you go to the Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument. But the difference is it's a there's just a huge amount of flights because people flying in and out of Las Vegas, if they're coming from most places in the U.S., they fly over southern Utah. And that's, I mean, we obviously have jets flying over the northern Rockies, but I I don't think that it's um, when I've been out in, you know, roadless areas or wilderness areas in Montana, I haven't noticed as many uh, flights. What about, what about small planes? Those Those things are like, the worst for me when I'm in the uh, wilderness, the worst, but um, I don't see as many of those either. And we, ha- we have a yeah. lot of them in Oregon. Drives me crazy. Well, that's what I just partly. It's probably because Montana has a lot smaller population than Oregon. You yeah, know, there's for 1. Sure. 1.1 million people here, so yeah, obviously it's going to get worse. And the Wilderness Act allows planes to fly over wilderness areas as low as 2,000 feet, which is really not very high. I'd like to see that changed at some point. Um, well, we could. I want to keep talking about it because we need quiet, and wildlife needs quiet. So let's talk about the collaboratives here. I, I have a bit of a confession to make first, and you know, I hope listeners will also want to tell their stories too if they have them. But you know, there was a time not too long ago, and I'm sort of embarrassed to say that I trusted the Wilderness Society and. Montana Wilderness Association to actually carry forward the work that they used to do. You know, I feel like they're like the beneficiaries of inherited reputations, essentially. And the Blackfoot Clearwater Stewardship Act at one point, um, I didn't know any better, but other than to support it because I trusted the organizations, but they didn't ever talk about essentially releasing the, you know, roadless lands to multiple use uh, inventory roadless lands and so, you know, I'm sort of embarrassed to admit this. This was maybe like four years ago or so. And, and it was just um, a really profound shift in my thinking. And, and I actually, 
you know, I started out this podcast kind of more journalistic to kind of get both sides of the story. And like, I even interviewed the Wilderness Society, Scott Brennan over there in, in Bozeman about the Galton Force Partnership, for instance. And um, I sort of regret not being more hard hitting uh, and and holding him accountable. But I'm uh, I'm pretty pretty disgusted with everything now, and and my eyes are wide open. Believe me, now, Mike, and and uh, I hope the public can start to see it. But um, what are collaboratives and and what are they doing across the state right now? And what's the big problem? Um, well, Congress enacted a law encouraging collaboratives to help the Forest Service design timber sales or other management projects. And as we talked about earlier, these environmental groups get paid by the Forest Service to participate. And it's not, it's usually not a, a, a thing where everybody can participate. For example, there was a collaborative to design a management project in the Gravelly Mountain Range, which I mentioned earlier that Greater Yellowstone Coalition got paid to facilitate. And they kicked off an environmental attorney named John Meyer and the head of uh, the Gallatin Wildlife Association, Clint Nagel, because um, they were pushing for an alternative to remove all sheep grazing in the gravelies because grizzly bears sometimes eat sheep. They're an easy target for grizzly bears. They're not that big, and they don't have any way to defend themselves. So when if grizzly bears kill sheep, the federal government kills grizzly bears. And it, as I mentioned earlier, the gravelly mountain range is a – natural corridor leading out of Yellowstone Park to the Bitterroot ecosystem and and up along the Continental Divide to the Northern Rockies grizzly population. And they came up with a... All they really do is put their green stamp of approval on the Forest Service's proposal. And I more aware of the collaborative that Scott Brennan participated in on a logging project in the Sealy Swan Valley of Montana called Colt Summit. It was a big, massive timber clear-cutting uh, logging project, road bulldozing project in bull trout critical habitat, lynx critical habitat, and grizzly bear habitat. Grizzly bears don't have critical habitat because the critical habitat precision provision of the Endangered Species Act was added after grizzly bears were listed. Lynx are rapidly declining. And if an area's logged, lynx avoid it for up to 50 years. And the Sealy Swan Valley of Montana is one of the few good spots left for lynx. So we sued to uh, oppose it or to stop it. And uh, the, the collaborative group, which MWA and the Wilderness Society were part of, supported it. And when we sued, we saw the administrative record. And it turns out the Alliance for the Wild Rockies and other grassroots groups that we were, that were co-plaintiffs, um, 
we found out that we met with the Forest Service many more times than the collaborative groups, and they didn't help design the timber sale. And so I, Scott Brennan was trying to convince me to support it, and so I told him all the scientific reasons we were opposed to it. He said, yeah, I showed your comments to our scientists at the Wilderness Society, and they agreed with everything you said. And I said, well, why are you fighting it? He said, well, this cuts trees for lumber, and the more trees we get cut, the better the chances are that Senator Testa will get reelected, and that's my job. And uh, I said, well, our job is to protect habitat for native species in the northern Rockies, and it's actually illegal for a nonprofit to get involved in political campaigns. So, but the, but it, their, their scientists keep putting out like pretty decent reports, right? Like, here's an article logging free forests are critical for threatened wildlife. And then they have these like more recent, you know, they have a, a, a report on, on how important roadless areas are. But then when the rubber meets the road, they're like endorsing logging projects and getting into this political bullshit. Yeah. Well, I think they keep their, they have PhD scientists. They just, they have them write their reports and then they have people like Scott Brennan decide their policy and yeah. foundations give money to these type of groups to help. Democrats get elected. Here's the report. The importance of U.S. national forest roadless areas for vulnerable wildlife. So listeners can find it. Well, I'll put a link, I'll put a link here in the show notes, actually, so people can see it. So, yeah. but Most collaborative. So the Colt Summit project that I was discussing was not in roadless areas, but most collaboratives now are in roadless areas. So the Greenhorn project in the Gravelly Mountains that was in a mainly in a roadless area, or it still is. They haven't signed a decision yet. But other projects or collaborative projects are doing are what you mentioned, the Blackfoot Clearwater Stewardship Act. And it's only focused on roadless areas. And so they want to carve up the roadless area there and give a small part make a small part uh, wilderness by adding it on to the Bob Marshall Wilderness Complex. But the majority of it is going to be carved up for uh, logging, road building, uh, snowmobile trails, and mountain bike trails. I don't understand, you know, since the majority of forest is already roaded and logged, why don't they make, you know, collaborate in those areas where they've already destroyed and i don't know i mean bob marshall was talking about this stuff back in the 20s and 30s and we're here we are 100 years later all this destruction you know you think yeah, they're, you'd think their resolve would would only strengthen but it's gone the other way well it's, it's just money i mean yeah what just, the bible just, says the love of money is the root of all evil <sighs> i mean we, we live in a capitalist society and People always want to make more money. They, you know, and buy a more expensive mountain bike or a more expensive snowmobile that can climb a higher mountain. Yeah, but we're killing we're killing ourselves. No, we are killing ourselves. And I mean, 
it's just not native species that are going to go extinct. I mean, now with climate change, you know, there's, you know, it hit like 70 degrees in Pittsburgh last week or, you know, something yeah. somewhere in the Midwest. And, uh, yeah, so it's, it's, it's nuts. Ridiculous. But yeah, it's just, but if you talk to like any of these employees at the wilderness society or Montana wild there, they will tell you that there are environmentalists who are working to protect the earth. But here's a different example. So in, um, 2000 and, Ten, we sued to overturn the delisting of wolves. There were 14 plaintiffs groups. And we were all represented by Earth Justice. We won, wolves were delisted. And then um, the government appealed, and Senator Tester started talking with some of the bigger groups like the Greater Yellowstone Coalition. And he kept telling them, you have to give up your victory or I won't get reelected. So we had meetings to discuss this, and I just said, well, um, we're a nonprofit. I can't get involved in Senator Tester's reelection campaign, and I'm definitely not giving up our wolf victory to help him get reelected. And so... Makes my stomach turn. They quit talking to me, but I did. Unbeknownst to me at the time... They kept talking to the 10 biggest groups, and they signed a settlement giving up our victory. So I found an attorney to sue to overturn that, and we won because the judge said, you can't settle unless all the plaintiffs agree. Then uh, Senator Tester introduced a writer to a must-pass defense authorization bill, delisting wolves in Montana and Idaho. And... Uh, groups like the Greater Yellowstone Coalition, um, Center for Biological Diversity, um, Defenders of Wildlife, the Nature Conservancy, all thanks Senator Tester. The center did and, that? Uh, the center was a part of that? Correct. So the groups that, that didn't cave in were the Alliance, and I was kind of the ringleader on standing up against them, and Western Watersheds Project, but uh, their ED at the time, John Marvel, he would call me and he said foundations would call him and tell him he was the only holdout, and if he didn't give in, he would uh, they would cut off his funding, so he would call me all upset, thinking I had sold out, and I said, no, I didn't. He goes, well, did they call you? And I said, no, they quit giving us money years ago. But so the Lions and sell out western watersheds project friends of the clear water didn't sell out and then the humane society of america or the united states i'm not sure what they're called they didn't agree but they promised they wouldn't fight it so they were you know on neither side and and if you don't fight it it essentially means you agree right i could have said well i don't agree but i had to go find an attorney to sue to overturn the settlement but it was all like we had lots of phone calls about it while they were trying to talk us into agreeing to the settlement. And it was just basically we need to get Tester reelected, and this is how we spin it to the public. That Tester is, even though, you know, we, 
they wanted us just to give up our victory and return wolves to be no longer protected under the Endangered Species Act. They were talking about, oh, yeah, we just have to put out a press release thanking Senator Tester for the wonderful work he did, which, you know, is really strange. I mean, 1984 or after Tester put... Uh, delisted wolves again. I got a bunch of mailings from like the Sierra Club and the Defenders of Wildlife with a wolf on the cover of the envelope asking me to send them money to, and CBD asking me to send them money to uh, protect wolves. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. And so this is, you know, that I guess that's a long way of answering your questions. They do good studies and make the public think they're doing the right thing, but when it comes down to policy, they're doing the ab- absolute opposite of what they're claiming. Um, so John Marvel was on episode 38 for the listeners, um, the founder of Western Watersheds Project. Back then it was Idaho Watersheds Project. Uh, we talked about public land grazing there. So just you brought up John. He's been on the program, and um, John's an incredible individual. Well, let's let's get back to the Blackfoot Clearwater Stewardship Act. I'm going to read the first part of your article in The Hill, and I will also include that in the show notes here. Montana's Democratic Senator John Tester sponsored Senate Bill S19, I'm sorry, 1493, dubbed the Blackfoot Clearwater Stewardship Act. But due to its minimal new wilderness designation, mandated logging provisions, special interest carve-outs in currently roadless national forest, and opposition by Montana Senator Steve Daines, it's fair to say the measure is facing a serious headwind in Congress. All right, so we just talked about like how messed up the bill is and how it, you know, it's gonna, it's going to be more logging and destruction of roadless areas, and uh, now like. Like Steve Daines doesn't even support it. So, well, of course he doesn't. Well, what, Steve what doesn't support it because he doesn't want any new wilderness. So that if they, he he'll he said he'll support it if they agree to give up wilderness study areas in other parts of Montana, and which is what there was a previous collaborative bill that Senator Baca's passed called something like the Rocky Mountain Front Heritage Act. But the Rocky Mountain Front is um, on the eastern side of the Bob Marshall Wilderness um, Complex, and it's it's very important habitat for grizzly bears and lynx and wolverines. And what the bill did is it designated 63,000 acres approximately of new wilderness, and I asked the proponents how they came up with that. And they said, well, it was the only place that nobody in the collaborative group objected. And it was, again, um, a, a self-selected group. Groups like the Alliance weren't invited. So it was mainly you know, the timber industry, ranchers, um, mountain bike groups, um, snowmobile people. So it, in return for designating about 63,000 acres of new wilderness, um, it removed uh, 250,000 acres of roadless areas from protection under the roadless rule and opened them up to logging and road building. And then when ranchers have grazing allotments on public land, like the Forest Service, the Forest Service sets the rules. And 
if they think the health of the land is being degraded by the cattle, they'll either order a reduction. They can order a reduction in the amount of cattle or order that the cattle be removed. I mean, they rarely do that, but they sometimes do it. The bill changed that for the Rocky Mountain Front, and it made the grazing allotments uh, a right by law. <laughs> so these ranchers can graze this land forever, and there's nothing the public can do about it, no matter how degraded the land gets. And that would be the same in the Blackfoot Clearwater Stewardship Act? No, it doesn't do that for ranchers in the Blackfoot Clearwater Stewardship Act. But this But Danes would but Danes would want that in here or well, is he, that, he's asking for right, it. Yeah, Danes would want that. But when this bill passed, the other thing that happened is four wilderness study areas in Montana were removed from the Wilderness Study Act. So they were opened up for opened up for full development, logging, bulldozing roads, whatever they wanted to do. So Danes, so, so that ha- that happened as a part of the the Rocky the Rocky Mountain Front Act, correct. And so what Danes wants to do with Tester's bill is he just wants to get rid of all wilderness study areas in Montana in return for his vote on that bill. And uh, but and so the Montana Wild is you know p- pushing Danes to support Tester's bill. But I wrote this saying, no, nobody should support Tester's bill because it's they're just carving up roadless areas. I mean, if they want to, like, increase economic activity, why don't they focus on the already roaded land that's just that's not good wildlife habitat? They always so, have to fix the roadless areas. What do you say to people who say this is the reality of the political situation. Like we have to compromise to get anything. Otherwise we're going to lose, we're going to lose it all. What do you say to those folks? Um, well, I was a congressional aide for two years for a congressman from Utah. So I understand how Congress works. And what I say is, uh, we're not naive. We understand, you know, bills are like making sausage. It's uh, not, um, you know, something that's really pretty montana wild does is they compromised up front and then it gets compromised further so like the rocky mountain front bill they they compromise it down to only sixty three thousand acres of new wilderness in return for giving up two hundred fifty thousand acres of roadless land and letting cattle grazing uh, become law there under statute. But then once uh, they started negotiating the Senate, they get it passed, they had to compromise more by giving up four other wilderness study areas. So our position is we know we have to compromise, but we're not going to compromise now because it'll get compromised down even further. We will compromise, <laughs> we will support compromise, but more you know right at the end if we like need you know just a few more votes to get it passed then we'll start talking count compromise the only way really to protect an ecosystem is you have to protect you know secure roadless areas and the connecting corridors in between them and if you compromise too much 
then you no longer have one connected ecosystem, so species won't be able to survive in the long run. So there is a limit on how much we'll compromise. And, I, and they always want the discussion to only be among their self-selected group. You know, Montana Wild, the snowmobilers, the ranchers, the timber industry, and somebody uh, from Oregon, I forget his name, he, in the 90s, when they were fighting about Spotted Owl, he was quoted in, I believe, Time Magazine, saying, you know, these national forests are owned by all Americans. And the idea that we only let the timber industry and their supporters or and like the Oregon congressional delegation solve this is saying that only the Mississippi congressional delegation and the KKK are allowed to solve the civil rights problem in the 60s. Our model is the Alaska Lands Act or, or was passed. Carter. Carter was president. And the Alaska congressional delegation originally opposed it. And, and uh, so Carter... Uh, stepped in and designated massive national monuments. And then, then they reached a compromise. <laughs> the Alaska delegation said, okay, well, we, we want any say about this. We have to work with them. And they passed the bill, but the, the Alaskan congressional delegation didn't want to protect anything originally. So we yeah, want to, and then you got the localism, the nativism, right? We want to make this an, a national issue because, you know, then again, these are forests that belong to all, all Americans. And almost every logging project in the Northern Rockies loses money under the Inflation Reduction Act and um, an earlier bill passed under Biden's presidency that um, I forget what its name now. Oh, that infrastructure bill they are giving the forest service they increase the forest services budget from five million dollars a year to 35 million dollars a year so taxpayers are giving the forest service 30 billion more dollars to subsidize logging so that money mostly comes from the rest of america not from the northern rockies so idaho montana Wyoming. Oming get more money from the federal government than than taxpayers here paid to the federal government. And you remember that legislation I sent to you that just came on my radar, a friend of mine, this was, I don't know, a number of months back, but there was a fiscal conservative Republican. It was like early 2000s or maybe late 1990s where he actually introduced a bill to stop all Forest Service logging projects because they were losing money. So like yeah, that, Republicans was, used to, you know, they used to, they didn't yeah, support this. Iowa, I think, but that's the congressman I worked for from Utah was a fiscally conservative Republican. And, um, he, he hired me because I was as a, you know, economics graduate student in Salt Lake at the university of Utah. I was making that argument. He learned about it and supported it. He thought that was, you know, a traditional Republican position. And Teddy Roosevelt was a Republican. He, he, he created the National Force to protect them from corporate exploitation. I'm going to read a quote from 
the Bader Report, which is which was commissioned by the Gallatin Yellowstone Wilderness Alliance. This is a quote from Mike Bader. He says, pro-environment members of collaboratives are often winnowed out through group power dynamics that isolate and even intimidate. For example, a pro-development member of a collaborative admitted to using isolation and intimidated tactics to get a pro-environment member to quit, further narrowing the proposals. This incident is far from being unique. Uh, and then he cited a paper from 2018 called The Role of Power in Collaborative Governance and Forest Management. So it's, it is documented um, kind of uh, how problematic these collaboratives are and, and how, they're, how they're set up to sort of manufacture consent and also to uh, intimidate and to roll uh, environmental members who um, really can't stick up for themselves because they don't have much money and influence in the system. Yeah, well, and I was part of two collaboratives. The first one was when I was going to the University of Utah. It was um, in southern Utah. And it broke down. It, we didn't reach a consensus. But we were pushing in return for protecting all roadless areas in um, the Dixie and Fish Lake National Forest in southern Utah, that the forest, right now the Forest Service has something called small business set-asides where they set aside certain logging projects for small businesses, but they they uh, designate a small business as, as having 500 employees or less. And in Montana and southern Utah, you know, <laughs> well, definitely in southern Utah, there was no timber industry that had more, you know, even, even anywhere close to 500 employees. And most of the timber mills in on the east of the Continental Divide in Montana don't have anywhere close to 500 employees. So we wanted to, to shrink it down to something like 50 employees or less because um, there are a lot of, like, small family-owned logging companies that just have a few employees that couldn't compete because the forest service likes to make huge timber sales that these small guys couldn't participate, couldn't buy, couldn't bid on. And so after we broke up, we got the, so one of the groups at the collaborative was the Southern Utah forest products industry, which was just small family owned logging companies. And we got them to agree to write a letter to um, Chief of the Forest Service, who was Mike Dombeck, and said, you know, we understand that you say the Forest Service has a $10 billion backlog on road maintenance needs. And um, we also value roadless areas because we've lived in southern Utah for, you know, five or more generations. And we like to go out and camp and hike and hunt and fish in these roadless lands. But we also need jobs. And we built some of these roads that are in desperate need of maintenance. So uh, it, if, if you want to sh uh, focus logging in roadless lands, we agree with that if you can, like, help us get some of this money to maintain 
all these roads and also make timber sales smaller that we can build on because we'd love these roadless lands to be protected so our kids and grandkids can enjoy them just like we did when we were young and continue to do. But the timber and this, the timber, the forest service supervisor, the Dixie national forest was so upset. He, he told them that he, they would never ever uh, be able to cut another tree on national forest lands. And uh, Mike Dombeck fired him, <laughs> but that's the only time I've ever known. <laughs> I just wanted to point that story out because these environmental groups, when they're working with, you know, so-called, you know, family-owned industry, they're really just working with large corporations against family-owned businesses. Capitalism, you know, the whole focus of capitalism, the bigger you get, the more power you have, and it drives small businesses out of business. Same with the grazing industry, too. Same with the grazing industry. On, pu- on public lands, right? I mean, you've got, like, yeah. Simplot and Nevada Mines and... yeah. Like it's it's the same deal, yeah. It's, it, this isn't like the small mom and pop, you know, cowboy ranchers anymore. Like, I mean, no. it is in a lot of places for sure, but but like that they're dwindling, and these corporations are just grazing more and more heads on uh, on public lands. Well, and in like in Montana in the Greater Yellowstone ecosystem, almost all ranches now are owned by billionaires, and. And same up around, you know, uh, the Rocky Mountain front. It's and Kevin Costner is accelerating that trend, huh? Yeah. First, it's first it's the pandemic, and then it's uh, Kevin Costner. It's just yeah, it's I, a nightmare. I read Bozeman Chronicle that uh, every time a new episode of Yellowstone airs on TV, realtors in Bozeman are flooded with phone calls. From people from rich people from out of state who want to buy property in Montana. Yeah, I doubt Kevin Costner listens to this program, but uh, <laughs> it, it'd be uh, it'd be great, Kevin, if uh, you could help support some of these grassroots efforts so we can uh, keep keep Montana the last best place, as they say. Yeah. Um, well, is there anything else you have to say about the Blackfoot Clearwater Stewardship Act? I mean, what what about these no bid contracts? Now that we're talking about special interests and corporate power um i'm not really familiar enough to talk about them i mean i can the forest service when they put out a a contract for a logging project they come up with a minimum bid but the way they figure their minimum bid is it's the the lowest bid possible that guarantees the timber company will still make money and but if they don't get any bids, they re-offer it until they get bids. So they keep lowering the price. But then also, they uh, Congress outlawed in the 90s the Forest Service paying timber companies to, in cash to build roads. Now they pay them in free timber. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if a timber company build, bids a million dollars to log a huge area – and it includes bulldozing new roads. They might bulldoze a road and say, tell the Forest Service it cost them $900,000. So then they end up only paying a million dollars for all that timber. And again, because of capitalism, usually in each area, there's we're now 
there's not really competition anymore. Um, so they often only get one bid and that's where they'll keep lowering it, lowering it until they get a price that that timberness company likes. Well, that that of, yeah, that makes sense. And, but, but these are like, these are sort of worked in to the collaboratives as to sweeten the, the pots, right? Well, it's worked in even without the collaboratives, but the timber company, the local timber company is always a participant in the collaborative. So in the Kootenai National Forest, for example, there's the Kootenai Stakeholders, Kootenai Forest Stakeholders Alliance, I believe it's called. So Montana Wild is a member. There's uh, other environmental groups like the Lands Council out of Spokane is a member. Um, Yellowstone to Yukon is, I believe, a, a member. And um, so they give their green stamp of approval on these horrible, massive clear cuts and road bulldozing projects in the middle of grizzly bear habitat in the Cabinet Yak. And then if we sue, the stakeholders coalition intervenes against us and they get declarations from the environmentalists at, you know, Yellowstone to Yukon or Montana Wild to talk about how important it is for the local economy. And this timber sale isn't bad. It's a wonderful timber sale that will help grizzly bears, even though there's no scientific evidence whatsoever to support that. And the scientific evidence is clear cutting and road building results in more dead grizzly bears because they don't have anywhere to hide and there's roads everywhere. And, um, Killing grizzly bears is more of a crime of opportunity. Guns are heavy. And so nobody wants to carry a heavy gun hiking through the forest, a thick forest, and hope that they'll see a grizzly bear. But if you're, you can drive a lot longer <laughs> than you can walk in a day. And if there's a bunch of clear cuts where these roads lead, grizzly bears are easy to see, and you just stop your vehicle and shoot them. But also with wildfires too, right? Like if they're really concerned about all these wildfires starting, threatening homes, like where do these fires start? You know, they start like off the road systems too. So you right. build more roads, so there's going to be more fire. So it's like at every turn, it's just, it, it's working against their, their stated purpose of, of these projects. Right. And the vast majority of wildfires are caused by humans. And sometimes they're caused by loggers, you know, just sparks from their equipment. Um, yeah, and, and here we're just talking about public lands, right? Like most fires actually start on private lands and they move on to public lands. Right. But like for the ones that start on public lands, yeah, it's off the road systems, right? This is where people are throwing their cigarette butts out. This is where the chainsaws are sparking. This is where the campfires aren't smothered. You know, there's lots of pyromaniacs out there who <laughs> light fires on purpose. Um, and again, it's real easy. Like they, somebody was convicted recently and he admitted that he would just drive along these roads and light pieces of paper and, you know, bundle up a piece of paper and light it and then throw it out the window. <laughs> he would, it was real easy for him to start 20 or more fires just in one afternoon. Yeah. I thought that was uh, I thought Antifa was doing that over in, in Portland, but <laughs> No. <laughs> Anyways, uh, yeah, we don't have to go down that road. But one, it's, one it's other the scientific th evidence, I'm sorry, is that if you want to protect 
homes from wildfire, you just need to start from the home and work out. Have a, a non-flammable roof. Don't have a firewood stacked up next to your house and or don't have a propane tank right next to your house. You just want to remove flammable material um, within like 30 feet from the house. Yeah, listeners should check out Jack Cohn and uh, also watch the movie Elemental for some of that. And then, but the Forest Service doesn't want to do that. And what Cohen figured out was if they, if they log, you know, um, out away from homes, they, the, the idea they claim is on a hot, windy day, an, a, an ember from a fire can travel up to four miles. And Cohen says, yeah, it can. But if you, if you fire, made your home and property fire resistant, with things like a metal roof and don't have a wooden deck right next to your house. If that ember lands on your metal roof, nothing's going to happen. It'll just burn out. But if so, and he said that, you know, logging doesn't stop fires. Fires burn through clear cuts. Yeah. And it, it has no, it has no relation whatsoever. It, there's no evidence that logging does anything to pre- prevent homes from burning. The only way to do it is if you log right next to the house and then also still have a non-flammable roof and a non-flammable deck. Actually, I haven't seen the movie Elemental yet, but I've heard good things. Um, so that's why I'm recommending it. I've heard good things from people that I that I trust. But they did highlight one fire, which is actually pretty close to me. It's called the Millie Fire. And it burned through uh, all treated and thinned forest. And well, um, it actually burns faster because a thin through a thin forest because they because they thinned it, the wind can blow quicker through that forest. And it dried out. It dries and, it out. And the and sun it, dries it out. Whereas a real thick forest, the sun isn't hitting the forest floor. The wind can't move through it fast. So it. It, it, it doesn't as well. What what happened is like the the wind shifted, like it was coming, it was coming to the town of sisters and then the wind shifted and it, and it blew back and and it kind of back burned itself out. But the forest service likes to talk about that, you know, Oh, it's because it was thin that it, you know, it saved the town. It's like, it's like, yeah, actually go look at the fire report itself. But you know, for whatever reason they like to talk about it. It's like, they don't even read their own materials. Yeah. Um, so, th- anyways, that's a whole, that's a whole tangent. Go ahead. We um, can I want to also cover the Lincoln Prosperity Act, which is a a proposal being pushed by the Wilderness Society and Montana Wild. And there's a town on the southern edge of the Scapegoat Wilderness, which is part of the Bob Marshall Wilderness Complex, and the town is called Lincoln. And so, wilderness, the Wilderness Society and what Montana Wild are pushing the Lincoln Prosperity Act. And there's 200,000 acres of roadless lands around Lincoln. And um, so it's de facto wilderness. So it's Link's critical habitat, bull trout critical habitat, and grizzly bear habitat. And they want to carve up these 200,000 acres of de facto wilderness and make approximately... 54,000 acres designated wilderness. And then we open the rest up to 
logging, road building, snowmobiling, and building mountain bike trails. So, again, the vast majority of land around Lincoln has been heavily logged and roaded. So there's lots of places people can ride their bikes and snowmobile and they can log, but they want to pick the roadless areas. So it's, the, it's all driven by the timber industry, really, right? Because they want to well, get at those fresh logs. The timber industry, the snowmo and the motor, the motorized recreation industry and the mountain bike industry. And so it's those three industries that are really pushing this. And then also the forest service, because, you know, to implement all this will take more money from Congress because timber sales lose money. So the, the more money that Forest Service loses, the more money they get from Congress. And that's their goal every year is to make their budget bigger. Where is that proposal right now? Like, is, it's just is, is, a proposal. That, is there a bill, is there a bill, a draft bill no, or anything? No, it's just a proposal. My theory is that they're, waiting for the Blackfoot Clearwater Stewardship Act to pass, and then they'll do either the Lincoln Prosperity Proposal or the Gallatin Collaborative Proposal next. Because historically, uh, members of Congress in Montana used to try and have one bill to open up the vast majority of the roadless lands in Montana to logging, roading, snowmobiling, mountain biking, but those never pass. So their new strategy is to, once they pass the Rocky Mountain Front Bill and designated 63,000 acres of wilderness in return for opening up 250,000 acres of roadless lands to logging and road building and permanent grazing, and then also got rid of four wilderness study areas, um, they think, okay, well, this we'll just do it one small patch at a time. So I, I, I assume it's the next one coming down the pike. It seems to be that way, um, but it's hard to tell. Like, what are they going to do next? Like, are they going to do the Galton Range, or I guess we'll see. I mean, and that's the one the Galton Yellowstone Wilderness Alliance is watching, right? So I've got some information here on that. I know listeners might be tired of hearing about it but it's just such an important area um so we've got the highlight porcupine buffalo horn wilderness study area which is the heart of the galton range just uh, just on the doorstep of bozeman montana uh there's about still 210,000 acres of roadless lands uh about 155,000 of that is part of that WSA, which makes the heart of the range. And the Galton Forest Partnership, which is made up of groups like the Livingston Bike Club, Winter Wildlands Alliance, the Wilderness Society, of course, uh, Montana Wild, Greater Yellowstone Coalition, they want to see over 50,000 acres of the wilderness study area released. So w- what is what is a release, Mike? It means it's... It's no longer protected under the roadless rule, and it will be managed like all roaded lands will. So they can they can uh, bulldoze new roads. They can snowmobile. They can uh, ride motorcycles. They can ride um, off ATVs, four wheel drives. They can clear cut it with mechanical equipment. Um, 
it, it's you know an area open for commerce. <laughs> and what is release language in a in a wilderness bill as it pertains to wilderness study areas? Is it the same thing, or is it a little different? Um, well, wilderness study areas preserves an area with no release until as de facto wilderness until Congress either decides that they're going to designate it wilderness or to not designate it wilderness and turn it back into an area open for full development. And and so like one of these, the Blackfoot Clearwater Bill or the Gallatin Bill you're talking about, it neither of those are wilderness. Well, most of it, the Blackfoot Clearwater isn't a wilderness study area, but parts of the Gallatin is a wilderness study area. So it would, it's a new law just saying, okay, we've decided um, we don't want to designate all this wilderness study area wilderness, uh, but we'll designate a small part of it. And then there's the other roaded lands that we're not going to designate wilderness either, and we're not going to keep it roadless anymore, protected under the roadless rule. We're going to open it up to all the things I just described. So it's currently and, pro- and what, it, it currently enjoys protection. That's why they have to release it, right? So they're saying, okay, this right. is a wilderness study area now, but in order to get to dispose of it, we have to quote we have to release it. And same with inventoried roadless areas, which also have a, a designated protection on the ground. But in these bills, they never talk about wildlife. <laughs> it's just like. Yeah, but also like they don't talk about the releases. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. And, and they, that, they just talk about the wilderness they won. So they, you know, so they can parade that around. Right. And, and uh, in the yeah. Blackfoot Clearwater Bill, they do talk about wildlife and fish, but just by line. They just say, you know, this will protect habitat for lynx and grizzly bears and bull trout but they're doing the exact opposite so it's a real orwellian campaign yeah they don't talk about the net effects of yeah. of, of the, the the totality of their actions across the landscape right they don't yeah, talk well, about there's that. really no positive effects they're they're saying well this this small amount of wilderness we're going to designate which is currently de facto wilderness right wildlife fish and wildlife don't know what the difference is and so they're 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 gonna keep protected what's currently road a very small part of what's currently roadless and then the vast majority of it they're gonna open it up for industrial development and then it brings all the noise impacts in there too right so like that like noise doesn't know what a wilderness boundary is so right and it's even worse there's several studies now that um human activity wildlife flee from humans because wildlife knows that you know humans can kill them so even like when you visit an area like when humans visit an area like even a few times a year that actually changes their their patterns that was a study out of canada or alaska i think it was canada somewhere in canada yeah well here grizzly bears are a good example grizzly bear sows or female grizzly bears train their cubs right on what is good habitat and what to be afraid of so the the sow knows to if if an area um, has you know a lot of human activity, then the sow teaches her cubs to avoid that area, and um, or wolverines. Studies show that you know wolverines eat carrion mainly, which you know dead animals, and um, studies show that you know wolverines roam vast areas, but they 
they avoid humans as much as possible. So, and wolverines are, you know, are listed as proposed to be protected under the Endangered Species Act. So, it's really disgusting what they're doing. Okay, here's a here's a little history for the listeners. So, Montana Wilderness Association in 1985. They were advocating for 85% of the roadless lands in the Gallatin Range to be designated wilderness. Uh, the Greater Yellowstone Coalition in 1994, they wanted 100% of the roadless lands, all 210,000 acres. And now, in, um, I don't know when the GFP got started, I think it was like 2019 or something like that, maybe a little earlier. They, they're they're advocating for 40% of the roadless lands. So it's like, and the Forest Service is looking at 34%. It's like, yeah, the, what the Montana, heck? The Montana Wilderness Association was started by in the 50s by people who wanted to greatly expand the wilderness areas. And they weren't ever then talking, they were fighting the timber industry. But, but again, remember in 1990, the Montana Wilderness Association had one full-time employee and one half-time employee, and they, they had a very small rented office. Here's <laughs> a so quote. That- yeah. Here's a quote from Mary Erickson. She's the forest supervisor of the Custer Galton National Forest. She says, quote, while I did not incorporate the Galton Forest Partnership proposal in its entirety, I found the work of the Galton Forest Partnership to be the most compelling for this landscape. The plan includes backcountry areas in the Buffalo Horn, South Cottonwood, and West Pine areas, and a highlight recreation emphasis area, although with some different boundaries than the Galton Forest Partnership proposal. I mean, they basically took what the what the what the what the Galton Forest Partnership wanted it and and incorporated it. Um, and there's very little difference. I think maybe the, the you know, the force, the Galton Force Partnership wanted to seek the Cowboy Heaven edition, and that ended up getting included. But still, we're only looking at 13% of the wilderness quality lands in the entire Galton National Forest um, identified as recommended wilderness in the new forest plan. 13%. Well, maybe just to summarize. Every year, there's more and more roads in our national forests and wildlife. So grizzly bears get killed near, road, near roads. Lots of species uh, avoid roads. Lynx don't like to cross roads. And there's over 450,000 miles of roads on our national forests. Compare that to the interstate highway system, which is about 50,000 miles. So we have lots of roads. We don't need to build more roads in roadless areas. And what conservation biologists tell us, that since we're in the world's sixth great extinction period, we have to protect entire ecosystems by focusing on secure wildlife habitat and protecting, connecting travel corridors between those secure areas. And... MWA in 1990 strongly supported protecting all roadless areas <laughs> under the roadless rule. And you you can't log unless you build a road. You can't. It's not economical to drag a tree out with a with helicopter a or, or fly it out with a helicopter. You have to build roads. And um, so all these little 
all these places where they're selling out a majority of the rhodus areas, in the end, it's going to cause a vast amount of species to go extinct. And and for what? For subsidized logging, right? That's it's or and then these logging roads end up turning into snowmobile trails or motorcycle trails or ATV trails or mountain bike trails, and all of which grizzly bears avoid, or lots of wildlife avoid. Here's here's one more quote from the Bader Report, which, by the way, listeners, is available at GalatonYellowstoneWilderness.org. Just scroll down the page a bit. You can read the summary and the full report. We also have a webinar that we did. Um, Here's a quote from the Bader Report. The director of the Montana Department of Fish and Wildlife and Parks testified the Gallatin Range provides 70% of the winter range for the Gallatin elk herd that summers in Yellowstone National Park has winter range for the highest concentration of wintering moose in the Gallatin, Madison, and Yellowstone drainages. It's incredible. And as lands vital to the recovery of the endangered grizzly bear population in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. So this is serious stuff here. And, you know, how do we turn this around, Mike? I mean, we're talking about it. I feel like that's that's really important. And I think the easiest, simplest way to turn it around is we have a new Congress, so the Northern Rockies Ecosystem Protection Act will once again get introduced this spring, you know, in most likely March or maybe even as late as April. Ask your two senators and your representative in the House of Representatives to co-sponsor this bill. The other way is to start um, opposing projects like the ones we're, we've been discussing. I mean, it's again, it, this land belongs to all Americans. You don't have to be a resident of Montana to oppose it, or if you see a bad project in another state, you don't have to be a resident of that state. Submit comments and, and um, tell the Forest Service what you think, or tell the BLM what you think. And support I mean, groups like like yours, the Alliance for the Wild Rockies, and... Uh, and don't uh, support the groups that <laughs> are advocating for the, all the dis- yeah. Stop giving them money. Wake up, folks! Like you see all these signs around Missoula, like supporting the the Blackfoot Clearwater Stewardship Act. Montana roadless lands is approximately well. You said six point two or the six point three million acres of roadless lands. About four million acres. Much of it, some of it's already protected as wilderness and parks. That's roughly seven percent of the state. So that's it. We only have 70% of the state as, as roadless lands currently, and that's dwindling. Yeah, and, and so the other thing, Biden and the UN are saying we need to protect 30% of the landscape. I think um, E.O. Wilson is the first one who was advocate, advocating for that. But the BLM and the Forest Service are saying, oh, yeah, we'll protect it by continuing to graze log and bulldoze the hell out of it well that's not what eo wilson and the united nations are talking about if 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 we need to like protect species and fight off climate change these um wild areas are tremendous carbon sinks i mean it's not just trees that absorb carbon it's soil so soils absorb carbon so um sagebrush habitat that isn't grazed absorbs lots of carbon for example it you know the sagebrush puts the carbon in, deep into the soil, and so it's important that the public understand this and and urge their members of Congress and the Biden administration to really protect 
30% of the habitat, and the best way to do it is by having a declared wilderness or a national monument that isn't, you know, that has strong protections for the land because, you know, I, right now uh, we couldn't get a bill through Congress designating 30%. But I guess the big point is lots of groups saying, well, I support bills like NARIPA, but it won't pass. So I have to support these crappy bills like the Blackfoot Stewardship Clearwater Act. My response is, well, yeah, it hasn't passed yet, but it would have a lot better chance of getting passed if groups like yours support it, <laughs> selling out. And how can people learn more about NARIPA? By going to the Alliance for the Wild Rockies website. It's allianceforthewildrockies.org. You could go to congress.gov and, and search for the Northern Rockies Ecosystem Protection Act, but it's, uh, you could also do it by just going to our website. Mike, thanks for all the great work you do in the Northern Rockies. And I'm just, I'm so grateful for the Alliance and everything you do and and holding these other groups accountable and also really giving us a vision for, for, for what, what we should be seeing on the ground in the Northern Rockies. So thank you very much. And thanks again for your time on this Saturday. Well, thank you. And again, I want to emphasize I'm, Alliance isn't a one-person operation. It's an alliance of activists working together. I just happen to be the only one person getting paid, but I, I work with other small environmental groups and also lots of uh, volunteers. So it's something we're all doing together. And if more people can help us out, then we can become even stronger. And uh, thanks for your wilderness podcast, Adam. I really appreciate it. Okay. Thank you, Mike. Have a good day. Thanks for listening to this episode of Wilderness Podcast. You can find us online at wildernesspodcast.com. Don't forget to subscribe through your podcasting app. Thanks for listening.